Well, good morning, folks. Uh, today, we uh, actually the the prayer we had uh, began with a reflection on the Gospel of John and the story of the wilderness feedings. We are at a similar place uh, in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We've been working, uh, uh, doing a close reading through the Gospel of Mark uh, these last several weeks, and we'll be continuing to do that. And we find ourselves in Chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, uh, which uh, is just after the, the, that one of those wilderness feedings that, uh, that Mark records, uh, where the loaves and fish are turned into uh, an abundance for all who were present. Um, today, we have a, a story that, like our last one uh, from last week, is sandwiched between Jesus's uh, prophetic actions, the wilderness feeding, and then uh, which is which is something that happened in, in Jewish territory and a similar feeding that will happen in Gentile territory. And the next actually story that we're going to see is uh, in, in, in reading the book in order would be the, the story of, of the Syrophoenician woman where a Gentile woman, Jesus engages with a, a gentile woman and she talks about uh that you know the how, how the, the just god would want her to have at least the crumbs from the table uh that jesus is setting so that's where this story situates and i i, I uh, emphasize that simply because our, our our way of going through the gospel of mark as i remind you is we're trying to look at this grand tapestry that mark has painted that tells us who this jesus is and what god's claim upon us is through Jesus and and who we are uh, to understand ourselves to be in light of the the truth that is revealed in Jesus. Uh, so so as, as we dig in that today, I, I wanted to bring us back to remember certain things that are pretty important about this uh, very familiar story to us. Uh, you know, a couple of the characters. One of the things that uh, Mark tells us is that uh, there uh, are two groups. Uh, that that once again, uh, as they were in chapter two, now here in chapter seven, are alive against the Jesus movement. Uh, the first are the that I want to mention are the scribes or the legal experts that are, have come up from Jerusalem. You know, these guys have walked you know over ninety miles uh, to see what's going on with this uh, political uprising that is, is beginning to concern folks uh, who are in power. That's happening up in Galilee, in the mountainous and fertile regions near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, these these uh, uh, legal experts from Jerusalem, of course, represent the elite, those who are empowered to govern uh, the Jewish uh, province of Rome uh, that is known as Palestine. And so it's a, in a certain sense, they are protecting the Sadducees and uh, in, in the, the set of, of the, the opposing party, the Pharisees, uh, who have some sort of power. And then the other group are the Pharisees themselves of Galilee. So geographically, they live in Galilee. They would have grown up with uh, uh, Jesus's peers. Uh, and they're members of the Pharisee party. Now, I want to mention a subset here because scholars uh, recognize certain things that Mark describes as being the characteristics of one subset of the Pharisaic party, and that is called the Havarim, the Havarim. Uh, and we'll talk about that more. But the, the thing I want to remind us of that's most important here um, is that the Pharisees are not like many of us were taught in Sunday school. We know from scholarship uh, that uh, we, we got much of our understanding of who the Pharisees are uh, when we were kids from uh, uh, anti-Semitic uh, scholarship from Germany uh, that denied the, uh, the Jewish nature of Jesus and, uh, and emphasized the uh, opposition that he had with the Pharisees. But in in uh, in studying uh, you know the quest for understanding the historical Jesus, one of the things we've learned is that the Pharisees were a good 
well-meaning people. They were part themselves of a holiness movement, a massive, powerful holiness movement, trying to help Israel become Israel to achieve the, the vision that God had for them. They were not willfully persecuting people, but rather were striving to construct a holy society that they thought would be pleasing to God. And I mentioned that uh, because it's pretty crucial to our story here to see that there is conflict with the, between, between the Pharisees and Jesus. Um, and uh, I, I also want to mention that our own recipes for our the communal gumbo that we are striving to create together have a lot more in common at times with the leaven of the Pharisees than they do with the leaven of Herod Antipa that we talked about last week. So we talked, if you remember, about the head on a platter from Herod Antipa and the leaven of, that Herod had wrought. And today we're dealing, this story deals with the leaven that the Pharisees had wrought. And so my opening comment to you is I think that we have an awful lot more in common ourselves these days uh, with the Pharisees. So I think we should pay close attention to that. So what we see is conflict and controversy arise as these two groups try to delegitimize the Jesus movement that had been arising so far in Galilee and ultimately will go to Jerusalem. And Mark then recalls this episode as part of his description in his, in his painting on his canvas, the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus opposed. So what did the Pharisees do? Well, the Pharisees uh, had already, we've seen, criticized the Jesus movement's very inclusive eating habits. Uh, once again, we see that happening. We saw it in chapter two and elsewhere. And they, uh, those, the eating habits that they prescribed uh, demanded a maintenance of strict group boundaries. This is something we know is characteristic, particularly of the Havarim people. Uh, they felt that in order to be more holy, we need to have a strict compliance with the uh, the scriptural and particularly the teaching of the elders in, in, that, that taught us how to, to fulfill God's instruction, to fulfill Torah, the oral tradition. Uh, and they, they felt that uh, holiness was represented by ritual purity. And that's the important word that we see in there in the gospel in our English translation is ritual cleansing, ritual purity, and, and dietary restrictions come into play here, right? So for the Pharisees, we've talked about this before, the, the symbolic purity code is really fundamental to preserving the ethnic and political identity of the Jewish people over and against oppression. So these were good people who were part of a holiness movement. And Jesus repudiates their exclusivist definitions of what holiness means, of what living with God means. So that's what we see happening. So with that big sketch of this story, let's dive into the plot. So what we see here is a conflict over what what Mark describes very clearly as ritual washing. I want to emphasize the word ritual because it's so easy for those of us who have been brought up with uh, uh, sanitation codes in our own homes and workplaces to read into this and say, oh, it sounded like they were right. They were they were interested in having clean hands so the germs wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, be passed from one to another. And that would be 
uh, anachronistic. Uh, for, for in this, in these, in these days, and in fact, in per, into very recent times, we had no idea of the concept of germs and and uh, and the importance of cleanliness throughout most of the world. Uh, and so, so we were, the conflict was over ritual washing, ritual cleaning, right? So in, in verse two, we see that they say that they noticed that some of Jesus's disciples were eating with unclean hands. And then in verse five, they say, why do your disciples eat their food with unclean hands? So that's the conflict that they 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 generate. And Jesus responds by not not by challenging their purity code, but something much more um, powerful. He, He challenges the entire Pharisaic oral tradition itself and says it's not just the conclusions you've reached, but the foundation that underlies it that is simply wrong. And so in verse 15, he says, it's the things that come out of a person that make a person unclean. It's the substance, not the not the form. And Jesus then after having repudiated that, repudiated that uh, with a, a, something we'll get into, uh, he then returns back to their question of, of ritual washing by renouncing the kosher regulations of the purity code. This is pretty important. Verse 23 it says, all these things come from with uh, all these evil things come from within a person make a person unclean. And so, uh, by the way, this, I was, as an aside, this is where you, we find one of the Christian bases for not following in the gospel, that is, other than Paul's writings, where we find, you know, not following the kosher regulations because Jesus himself taught that. So let's get into the details. Ritual cleansing, ritual, ritual cleaning in preparation for a table comes from actually uh, Exodus chapter 30, verse 12 and following and another place in, in, in chapter 40 in Exodus. Uh, and then the Levitical codes that that uh, reiterate those things in which it was the it wasn't all of the Jewish people, but in particular, the priests of Aaron before they were to enter into the tabernacles to do the priestly duties who were to do a ritual cleansing. And it was in over time through their oral tradition, they developed ways of of, uh, you know, thinking about that and what that entailed. And, and so they had layer upon what I would call accretions of layer upon layer upon layer of things that needed to be done in order to be ritually clean, cleansed before you entered into God's presence. And so there was, uh, it's listed here, uh, you know, washing of hands, a purification of food that's been bought at the Aora, the marketplace. Uh, there was the cleansing of utensils. Now, in reality, those practices uh, were, as again, these were not uh, matters of hygiene. These were ritual practices, and they were required only of the sons of Aaron, only of uh, the priests. Uh, and they were kept, other than the, by the priests, they were kept only by an extremist sect of the Pharisees that were known as the Havarim. So there was a, a subset of the Pharisees who, who wanted to extend the, 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 the uh, requirements that were imposed by the law upon the priests as they entered into the Holy of Holies upon all the Jewish people. And they said in their, in their holiness movement, their idea was that all of these types of, of rituals should be done not just by the people who are, who are of the priestly families, but by all Jews. And in fact, that the fact of oppression by various uh, con- conquering peoples uh, was due to the fact that not all the people were doing this. So it was a sort of an early priesthood of the believer type of, of teaching that they had. 
Notice that the conflict happens in the marketplace. And so what we see here is Jesus now engaging. He's engaged all sorts of other places, the home, the hearth, uh, the synagogue. Now he's he's engaging uh, and speaking about the economic sphere. The Pharisaic concern of, with this ritual clean, cleansing was to guard against consuming produce. So as I said, this was not about germs. It was about guarding against consuming produce that may have been rendered unclean uh, at some stage of production. So in other words, uh, they did, you know, in other words, uh, the, an impurity could have been contracted in the production of the food, really in either of two ways. The farmer himself could have sown uh, or harvested uh, the food in a way that didn't comply with the law. And perhaps, for example, in violation of Sabbath, you don't know if the farmer harvested on Sabbath when no one was looking, right? Uh, or it could be that the, the, the produce that you're eating was the first fruits. You don't know if the farmer sent the first fruits to make money off of it or he sent it to the temple the way he was supposed to, right? And so to protect against the fact that the fruits may have not gone uh uh, undergone proper separation for the ties uh, against, you know, for these two reasons, uh, there was the possibility, a great possibility that you might be eating unclean food that you bought in the marketplace, ritually unclean food. And therefore, before you could consume it, before you could prepare it, any of the tools, any of those things, you need to go through a ritual cleansing, which was a taking of water in one hand and, and, and washing the other hand in a ritual way. Uh, uh, so that, uh, that that you would be, be made right with God and the food would be right, be made right with God before you ate it. And so they asked Jesus, why are you not doing this? This is what the elders teach us we are supposed to do. The elders meaning the Pharisees, uh, the people of the Pharisaic parties. Now notice Mark, in the midst of all this, names the fact, I think this is sort of a poetic part of it, names the fact that the disciples, when when all this happens, were eating what? They were eating bread. They just left the wilderness. And so Mark is introducing this theme of bread sharing. And so now he introduces, uh, introduces this, this theme of conflict over how we share our bread and, uh, and what makes it a valid bread sharing. So the Pharisaic objection to unwashed hands might have been, and the way Mark is placing this, uh, a, a, a deeper had, had a deeper meaning in, in the sense that the the implication being the disciples themselves were contaminated because of their social practice, because they had just been out in the wilderness you know, breaking bread and fish. Uh, together with all sorts of people. You don't know where they came from and you don't know, you can't be assured of the ritual purity of them. And then shortly before, uh, excuse me, right, right after this, Mark's going to tell the story about Jesus himself uh, in the Syrophoenician woman and the, in the, in the, in the, Share, breaking of bread with the Gentiles in Gentile territory. Uh, and so in the midst of all of this, this theme of breaking bread, we have this conflict over what makes bread sharing and bread eating ritually clean. And so we hear Jesus saying, hey, the true sight of purity is not in the hands. It's in the heart. The boundaries of our community identity, our communal identity, are not given in a kosher diet, are not given in the practices that we follow, the rituals practices, the ritual practices, the religious practices. That's not what makes us God's people, but rather our way of being, the way we live, the way we love, 
this way of love. And so Jesus in this text here establishes a, a rule, a rule uh, that is the way of, of showing our faithfulness, which is a rule based not on ritual, but on ethics. And he then gives a, a list of things, all of which have to do with people, the sins that are listed, all have to do with people uh, abusing power, interestingly enough, and elevating themselves and, and suppressing others, uh, objectifying others. And so if you want to know whether or not you're with the Father, with your, whether you're with God, you don't look at whether you're washing your hands. You look at whether uh, your heart uh, reaches out to your neighbor in love. So this sounds like this could be something that uh, is a very interesting story. It's good to hear about Jesus. It has nothing to do with us, right? Well, I want to suggest to you that the leaven of the Pharisees is something that we see uh, still to this day, uh, like uh, uh, like any leaven. If you don't throw it out uh, once a year for spring cleaning, it'll just grow and grow and grow and spread and spoil the whole loaf. Uh, and so we see this now. I, there's a, a story that uh, is perhaps apocryphal that I've been told that I've shared with you once before, uh, you know, that illustrates how we are, we do this ourselves, just even in our family settings. There's a story I, I mentioned to you once before about the, the sisters and brothers who were all gathered for a family meal. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and this meal was one in which mom was not cooking. She wasn't preparing the food. She wasn't actually around. Uh, and so they're gathering for their first time and they're, they're preparing the, the roast the way mom had always done it. And then, and they spent a long time. And as they were about to eat it, a conflict arises among them because one of them realizes, wait a minute, uh, you, you prepared this roast and you didn't cut the end off and you have to cut the end off of the roast or it's going to spoil. And, they, and the siblings had all sorts of dispute over, well, what should they do? Because it, the, the roast had to be done the way mom taught uh, or else it might taste as good. It won't taste like mom's roast. And that's sort of the whole point, isn't it? For, you know, to, to, for it to be what we hope it will be. And then and then eventually they do contact mom and, and, and have her settle the argument. And then she explains to them, no, the reason I, I always cut the end off the roast is because it wouldn't fit in the pots that I got when I was married. Uh, <laughs> it had nothing to do with what you thought it was. And so uh, yet yeah, we have these traditions of the elders that we carry on and we carry on until we lose sight of why they are there. And they then ultimately end up distorting our purposes. One of the ones that I, I got that was passed on to me uh, that I remember as a kid was don't date outside your type. So it was very clearly taught to me that I was to uh, I was not really allowed or welcome that, uh, you know, a, a girl would not be welcome back to my house if she was not white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, uh, very clear boundaries. And that uh, that's that's what uh, was was going to get uh, an easy passing grade on anybody I brought home. Uh, why? Because that, that, that separation uh, on, the, on that basis was the tradition that had been passed on from generation to generation where I grew up in Louisiana. Um, there's another one that's out today uh, that, uh, that we hear an awful lot of people say, talking about honoring and honoring the tradition of the elders, honoring the tradition of the elders that were important in their time. And that has to do with, I think, the statues that grew up uh, that, that, that surround uh, many places uh, where I grew up when I was a kid establishes uh, statues that uh, honor uh, the dead of the 
the uh, Confederate uh, um, states, the United uh, Confederate States of America, the CSA, uh, statues of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and such. And and uh, and the way I was taught, they had always been there, and we honor our dead, and they were great people, etc. And and uh, and I had no idea, you know, when I'm told, well, you can't; those things are sacred. Bringing them down will will will, will uh, in some some way impugn the honor, their honor, and the honor of all the forefathers who ever lived in our area, if we bring them down. And, 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 I, and I had no idea until recently that, uh, no, those statues were, weren't even erected until uh, Jim Crow laws came about. And it was, they were part of this, the myths that we needed to tell about a noble lost, lost cause uh, that, that uh, was the Civil War. Uh, and so the statues went up as, uh, as ways of, of, uh, of, of telling a, a new version of the story of what really happened. And so we have this leaven of the Pharisees that continues in our, our lifetime. One of the, one of the things of, that, that we have that's very similar in our history to what happened with the, here in this story of ritual cleansing has to do with schisms that have happened in the church, in the church. Uh, the, one of the, one of the schisms, perhaps the great schism of the church happened in the year 1053 in the 11th century. Uh, and that's the one where the Eastern church and the Western church split and are today still split over what? Over leavened bread on whether or not you needed to ritually prepare the way in, in a certain way in order for it to be a valid Eucharist. That was what the fight was over. And then we haven't been able to get back together for a thousand years uh, based on whether or not God smiled upon leaven versus unleavened bread in the in the uh, performance of the Eucharist. Uh, in the Episcopal Church, the schism of 1870 uh came about because of eating, uh, sharing the Eucharist with the wrong people. An Episcopal priest in the state of New York uh, shared uh, the Eucharist, presided at the Eucharist with a Presbyterian minister, which uh, became a great scandal and a scandal that uh, caused there to be the official ruling that thou shalt not ever do such a thing, uh, deign to uh, have Holy Communion with a Protestant uh, within the Episcopal Church. And if you would, the priest could have his orders revoked, uh, which then led to the schism of 1870, where uh, evangelical Episcopal churches is left in mass and formed their own church, the Evangelical Episcopal Church that still exists. Uh, but we've lost most of our evangelicals in, in the Episcopal Church over what? The, how, the rules pertaining to this ritual called the Eucharist. And, um, and I've shared several stories with you guys that are along the, that same vein. Uh, is a Eucharist valid if whites and blacks commune together? That was a, a question that arose during the Civil War. And then again, I share with you was a was a uh, issue at issue in the 1960s uh, within our own Episcopal Church. Uh, is a is a Eucharist uh, valid? Is 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 the is the is the bread still holy if a black priest consecrates it? If a female priest consecrates it? If a gay priest consecrates it? We've we've had incredible arguments within the Episcopal Church over these questions and. and and then, um, and then, and one that's common to many of us, uh, some of, some of you may have been a part of this, uh, is the Eucharist valid if it's not right one? If it's not the nineteen, if the words that are said are not the nineteen twenty eight prayer book, if it's, uh, is it only valid if it's spoken in Latin? Is it valid if it's not that old that old mass I memorized when I was a kid? These are things that still rise up in us where we have the teaching of the elders. This is the way we were taught it should be. And uh, and, and when it changes, we um, 
we struggle. I, I remember sitting when I was a seminarian and had a, a, a conversation that we never resolved. And the question was, what constitutes a valid sharing of our bread together? Um, and, and the question, the way I framed the question to the group that generated some controversy is I asked them, well, let me ask you something. If we all got together in the woods and there was not a table, there was not an altar, and we all we had was a, a bag of tortillas and some Coca-Cola. And I went and did all, performed all the words that are in the Lord's Supper with those instruments instead of the traditional ones. Would that be a valid Eucharist? Now, we never settled that question, but the, the point I think illustrates the thing that Jesus is saying. We get so caught up in the substance and the form, and then that then gets passed down from generation to generation to generation that it then hardens into the law. Notice what Jesus is saying here is you stopped obeying the commandments of God and start obeying the commandments of man. You made up the rules yourself. I'm calling you to obey God's teaching and not your own teaching. And that's what's at stake in this issue. That's his challenge to our Pharisaic ways. One of the ways that I think we experience the love of the Pharisees in our time, uh, I'm going to actually name two of them, uh, might surprise you. Did you know that fully half of the Bill of Rights in our Constitution constrain enforcement and punishment? Half. You go look at it. You might surprise. After the, uh, the, the, the discussion about freedom of expression, you know, speech and religion and, and our right to assembly and the right to bear arms, criminal justice is the biggest deal in our Bill of Rights. But these rights at the time applied only to white male property owners originally, and they never applied to enslaved persons in full. And from that, we developed very early on a tradition of applying these kinds, these concepts differently between whether or not you were a white male property owner or not. And so there was a tradition of stop and frisk that was very much a part of our uh, culture in America from the very beginning, uh, you, know, you know, on anyone who looked like they might be an enslaved person. Of course, we did away with that uh, when we did away with Jim Crow. But did you know that in the 1980s, our Supreme Court made clear to all the lower courts that from now on, the Fourth Amendment should place no meaningful constraints on police if they were stopping and frisking someone like they had always stopped and frisked persons of color before in accordance with the war on drugs. So they carved out something on the war on drugs. And so what we have now in our time is the, is, is the situation that in, that's been passed down for multiple generations. If you're being, if you're being taught as a police officer uh, in which no one needs to be informed of their rights during a stop or search and police may use minor traffic stops as well as the myth of consent to stop and search anyone they chose for imaginary drug crimes, whether or not there's any real evidence of probable cause. I'm quoting that last portion. I'm actually quoting a book that I urge you to read called The New Jim Crow. 
Um, and this is a situation where we have uh, generations of police officers being taught that uh, the way of the elders is the stop and frisk ritual uh, and that that stop and frisk ritual is about ensuring the safety of the people, that they are in some way protecting by doing this, the, the Constitution of the United States against domestic enemies uh, by continuing the practice of stopping persons of color without probable cause. For that's the law of the tradition of the tradition of the elders that is being held down, handed down to them uh, year after year. It's, it's always been that way. And, and, and that's just one example where we have uh, 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 something in our side, our, our society that I would characterize as the leaven of the Pharisees. And another one is one that we're seeing right now as, as this Delta variant of the COVID virus arises. Um, and that is this idea, this teaching that gets passed down from generation to generation in our country that freedom, the freedom that the forefathers imagined for us, uh, that the founding fathers imagined for us, I should say, uh, is about a private space. Freedom uh, is, is, is about you having a space that no one can enter, no one can tell you what to do, no one can uh, um, in any way um, impinge upon your liberty to do whatever it is that you would like to do. And, and so in our current context, that then that teaching of the elders uh, uh, results in many today saying masks and the wearing of masks are an assault on my freedom. But when we get back and say, wait a minute, let's go look and see what God's instructions are. What we discover is, well, that's a teaching of the elders. That's a that's a that's man's teaching about what freedom is, but not what God's teaching uh, tells us. Uh, for God's teaching uh, in the Scripture that we find is that freedom is not about some protected space that is only yours. Freedom is about liberation from mindsets that 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 impede your capacity, my capacity to love our neighbors as ourselves. Freedom is about learning how to find yourself by losing yourself, as Mark is about to teach us, about learning how to live by learning how to love. That's what real freedom is. Freedom is learning to willfully make space for others in our lives so that all may flourish. So when faced with the question of should I wear a mask, the question isn't about uh, is, is wearing a mask an assault on my freedom? Is freedom a private space as the elders have taught, many believe the elders have taught, uh, but rather uh, put on a mask, not because the secular law demands it, put on a mask because love of your neighbor and yourself command it. You are free by putting on the mask. That's uh, that's a, a different leaven. It's just the, that's the leaven of Torah, of God's teaching. That's it, it's, uh, that's being brought to play here in our lives. So we have this wonderful story of Jesus in conflict with these this really well-meaning people, the Pharisees, who are seeking to be more holy, but they have been led astray in the way they are going about that. And Jesus uh, here issues a, a very strong differentiating corrective. And what, I think there are two parts of, of good news here for us in this. First is, is that we see implied that sin is not about willfulness. Sin is not about whether or not we are willful in impeding the work of God. Sin is about blindness. The astigmatism of sin leads us to create unholy structures, unholy traditions that turn God's teachings upside down and obstruct 
the path to the living waters he's created in our wilderness wanderings. Sin is about ignorance and not, and not blindness. And therefore, we can correct our vision by learning to see and hear and smell in the way. As we learned in the in Lord has sent us the spirit to help us recognize the way of love. And the second thing is it's, you know, the sin is not about is not about willfulness, but 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 ignorance that can be cured. The second part of that is that the, the cure is already present. We have been given this living word and we've been given Jesus example. We've been given the spirit so that we can recognize the poisonous leaven of the Pharisees that we ourselves cultivate in the pursuit of our own bread making with each other. We've been given the nose to smell. And, the, and, and detect that spoiled leaven. And the test is simple. Does this teaching, does this tradition that's been passed down to me um, provide a, a place for all to flourish? That's the test. Does it create or perpetuate hierarchies of human value? Or does it set another place at the table so that all may feast at the table that the Lord sets for us? That's what's at stake in this conflict between our Pharisaic ways and Jesus's ways. God desires that all inhabitants of God's created order live in fellowship with God and each other. And here's the really good news. He has already given us everything that we need to do just that, to prosper with you, with me, all of us together, supping with our Lord in the wildernesses of our lives. May we take this good news and carry it out into the world and undo the leaven of the Pharisees that's among us and move our own communities in the, gener- in, in the direction of this leaven that Jesus gives us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.